And you were talking about the wheel that's using the Tour de France. So is that why Lance Armstrong won all those Tour de France's in a row? Well, there is a story about Lance, and it's actually <laughs> quite interesting. I got a phone call from a kid. Belocchi's gone down. Armstrong's off the road as well. Armstrong, complete control there. He's into the field, but what a great bike rider. He's gone across. This is unbelievable. I've never seen this before. Armstrong went across the field there. He's back on the road at four kilometers to go. What great reflex from the man from Texas, Tyler Hamilton coming along there, touching him on the shoulder. This is unbelievable. We want to fail, because then we know where our mistakes lie. You have to. Just like that swimming team I never made, completely failed. If I would have quit, I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now. Another amazing story that I'd like to tell you about is... For the first three years, we just lived hand to mouth and we'd sell a wheel and that would pay rent. We'd sell a wheel and maybe be able to go to a restaurant that night. It didn't happen quickly. A lot of it was just working tirelessly night and day on just getting enough products out there so that we could just pay the bills. My name is Anne Head. I am the co-founder and CEO of Head Cycling Products. We are located in Roseville, Minnesota. Roseville, Minnesota is experiencing the coldest winter on record ever and longest. We are from a place that is known for their 10,000 lakes. So I'm excited to explain my story to everybody, but I'm also excited that it is now 70 degrees and most of the snow is gone. Yeah, 70 degrees Fahrenheit. We're one of the few in the Fahrenheit system, so it'll also be much warmer. But how do you deal with that as far as running a business? When you have employees, are they working from home? Are they all coming to a certain place? Like, how do you get a deal with the weather when it's like that? Well, Minnesota people are pretty hardy, and most of my employees, which is just over 50 now, Believe it or not, some of them even ride their bikes in blizzards. So we kind of engage the weather here. If it's miserable and cold out, we all have different ways to enjoy our weather. Otherwise, I don't think we'd be living here. But one of the ways that we deal with it is a lot of people ride their fat bikes into work during these snowstorms because they can get to work quicker on a bike than they can on the roads when there's whiteouts. I have an amazing staff of people that we just grin and bear it and get on our bikes and get to work even on those horrid days. But it has to be pretty bad to close down the shop. Obviously, a whiteout condition is pretty severe, but most schools here don't close unless it's negative 55 Gosh. Fahrenheit. Wow. Negative 55. <laughs> so we don't get that very often. So we all have good snow tires. We have bikes, we have skis, we figure ways out to get to work. I'm in southeast of the United States in Florida, basically opposite temperatures. And I know at least in Atlanta, it doesn't really ever ice here, but I know when it starts icing in Georgia, they shut down everything because people don't know how to drive are not equipped as y'all and used to the lifestyle of cold and frosty winters. Sure. Makes us tough. Are you from there? Is it St. Paul, Minnesota, basically? Are you just outside of that? So Roseville is a suburb, sure, of St. Paul. We're really only 20 minutes from the airport where the factory is here. I'm originally from Duluth, which is even more rugged, right up there on the North Shore of Lake Superior. I'm about three hours south of that here now where I live, but that is a whole nother world up there that's really frigid, but you get all that North 
wind off of the lake and a lot of that snow effect. So I grew up in northern Minnesota where it's just another way of life. Have you lived there your whole life or have you moved around? No, I have lived in Minnesota my entire life. You know, I've traveled the world and I still always love coming back here. I think Minnesota is known for its friendly, nice people. We had the Super Bowl here this year and everybody commented about Minnesota nice. There really is something to that. I think there's a lot of wonderful people here and my staff, which has been with me, some of them for over 20 years. It's kind of like a big family here. A lot of people think we should be from California because we make bicycle wheels, but no, we've always been in Minnesota. Is that where a lot of your competition is? No, I think that a lot of people also don't realize this. We make composite carbon bicycle wheels, and there are very few manufacturers of carbon in the U.S. anymore. There was a handful years ago, but a lot of the carbon manufacturing has shifted to Asia, China, Taiwan. So we kind of have this little niche market that is so awesome because we actually make carbon parts with our hands here still in Minnesota. So I'm really proud of that. But there's very few other carbon wheel manufacturers here in the U.S., just a handful. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your company, how you're different from maybe these other bicycling companies that I've heard of. And so it's called HED Head Cycling, right? I just want to make sure that people, if they look it up, they're looking up the right company. Sure. Yes, it is HED. I know it's kind of funny. People say head and I'm like, yeah, head. <laughs> but our niche market obviously is carbon. And that is the infancy of how the company started way back in 1984, actually. But we only started with myself and my husband back then was actually just a friend. And I can kind of get into the story of how head cycling started because it's really a beautiful love story and I love telling it. It was something that just kind of happened when people ask how it started and how businesses started, I think ours is really unique. I was, as I said before, I had grown up in Duluth and I had moved down to the cities here to actually start college. And I saw this amazing thing on TV called the Hawaiian Ironman Triathlon. And I saw Julie Moss do that iconic finish line crawl that has been publicized for years since. And there was this crazy idea that I thought I wanted to do that race. I had always been athletic growing up in Duluth. I had to bike the hills just to get to work. I was a lifeguard. I was a swimmer when I was in high school and, you know, running just came along. So I had never really done a triathlon before. I knew to do this race, I'd have to go far to actually qualify for it. So I actually went to Texas and qualified for this race, but I didn't have any money for the entry of the race. Again, this is in the early 80s in the infancy of triathlons. And a friend of mine told me that there was this guy named Steve Head who owned a bicycle shop. And I bet he would maybe help you, this friend said. So I walked in there and asked him for $100 for the entry of the Hawaiian Ironman. And he actually just wrote a check and gave it to me. And I signed up and he asked me, hey, what else do you need? And I would love a new bike. My bike was pretty bad. And he gave me that. So Stephen actually was my first sponsor. And my first Ironman was in Kona in 1983. And he also needed a wife too. Is that what he said? Well, you know, that's how the story begins. You never really imagine that you would fall in love, but he loved working on my bike. And let's face it, you know, I, <laughs> I didn't like working on my bike and we started cycling together and he 
came from a background in water skis and skateboards, and he saw this amazing athlete set the hour record on a wheel that was front and rear and solid. And nobody had ever really done that here in the States before. So with his passion of cycling and his entrepreneurial spirit, he went in his garage with a friend and actually made the very first disc wheel. And he made a few more of them and gave one to me. And I started racing worldwide with it. I was fortunate to get sponsored by Mizuno Running Shoes back then. And I was able to travel on a team and more people started seeing this disc wheel of mine and we had to make a few more of them. But again, we didn't have much money. So I thought, well, maybe I can help Steve out because he helped me with a bike and my first $100. So I saw a triathlon on the East Coast that the first prize was a car. I thought, hmm, I'm going to go give this race a try. And I was super fortunate to be the first place female in that race and win a Subaru. And back then, that was just huge. I mean, to be able to, first of all, win a car like that, I would have never imagined that. But I came home and again, people were asking for these wheels. I just said, okay, I'm going to go to banks and see if somebody will give us some money. And of course, I got turned down a ton. Here I was, a little 21-year-old girl walking into banks with a wheel that nobody could ever imagine what it was. And there actually was a banker that listened to me after I'd gotten turned down several times. And he said, what do you have, Annie? I said, well, I have a car and a bike. And he said, well, give me the title and I'll give you some money. It was $14,000, which was, again, a lot back then and still is. And that was the seed money that we were able to start the business with and make the next round of wheels. So it was my fortunate win of a car and then Stephen's amazing entrepreneurial brain that was able to figure out how to make this wheel actually a business. You were 21 at the time, and how old was he? Well, okay, a little older than me. Not much. He was about seven years older than me. We just, again, started dating and started this business together, and then we eventually got married in 1990. Let's talk about the triathlons. Did you do running when you were in high school, when you saw that image of the woman crawling across the finish line? That's why you're like, hey, I want to just start doing triathlons and try to make money doing that, or is it just for competitive reasons? Or tell us a little bit more about that. I was a high school swimmer and I think one of my life lessons really what defines people is their failures in life. When I was a teenager around 13 years old, my parents had just gotten divorced and I was kind of struggling with what am I going to do next? I came from a large family of six and I think I want to try doing something athletic. So I went to my school and said, hmm, maybe I can swim. I mean, anybody can swim, right? And so I tried out for the swim team and you remember these things as of yesterday because I remember looking at the wall with all the names of all the girls and my name wasn't on there. And I'm like, wow, I didn't make it. I'm not good enough. I thought anybody could make a swim team. So I went to my mom and said, is there any way I can go to the local Y and learn how to swim because I really want to try something new? Again, we came from a pretty humble background. We didn't have a lot of money. And she said, well, you have to go there and make sure that it's not too much money. So I had to walk in there and ask them for like a membership for just me. And I joined the Y. One of the coaches looked at me and said, well, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I didn't make the high school swim team. She said, I'm going to teach you how to swim and I'm going to make you swim fast. And this woman was one of my mentors and I spent hours in the swimming pool and she taught me how to swim so incredibly fast. And I went back the next year. Not only did I make the swim team, I had some records that I broke. And that was like, 
the defining moment in my life that don't give up, find a mentor, and you can do something. Again, it was like a big stepping block of confidence in my life. So I became an incredibly fast swimmer, and I think I actually still have a record. <laughs> this many years later, they probably don't swim that distance anymore, but that built my confidence enough so that I thought, okay, what's next? And I needed a job when I was 16 years old, so I asked a friend of mine, and I became a lifeguard, and that was the way I would have to get to work. I'd have to bike because I didn't have a car, and that kind of got me in shape. And running just kind of fell into my life as just another alternative to do because I just loved exercising. Through the infancy of my life, it kind of built me up to become a triathlete because in the early 80s, I had to travel far to find one. There wasn't a lot around. And the only full distance Ironman, which is 2.6 mile swim, 112 mile bike, actually 2.4 mile swim, sorry about that, 112 mile bike and then a 26.2 mile run. There wasn't any, it was just the Ironman. So that was the iconic one that you would want to do. I just joined Patreon to support you guys. So if that's something that helps you guys out, keep doing what you're doing, then cool, you know? Yeah, I appreciate it. With the Patreon membership, you get this one-on-one -on -one call. Plus we're doing two group calls a month now with past guests. Plus there's an exclusive Patreon feed where you get special episodes if you're a Patreon member. Oh man, nice. I'll to snap to Awesome. Again, just over college, you would do a little bit of all this. And then as you were graduating, you decided to start competing in them? I actually didn't graduate. I had been in college for a couple of years, and that's when I qualified for the first Ironman. And then I met Steve, and then the business started. I was able to get sponsorship from what is now Lifetime Triathlon. Brahm was one of my first sponsors. And Mizuna Running Shoes and Chippewa Springwater. And I was able to make enough money out of the prize money from races, just enough so that I could get to the next race and pay my rent bill and eat something. But it was several years of, I'd say five years where I did this, but it got to the point where I wanted to help Steve with the business more than my racing. I mean, I was trying to race and run the business with Steve. So Steve and I started it together and he was the visionary of the company, but he needed somebody like me to figure out how to get the product out the door. So through the mid eighties, it was just, what do we do next? We're starting to get more orders. How are we going to fill these orders? So I cut back on my racing just because I felt that I loved being in the business more than I did racing. During this time, were you just using like inferior wheel? Is this how like the idea came about? Yeah, the wheel that we manufactured is for aerodynamics. And the very first wheel was a solid disc wheel that would go on the rear of the bike. And basically what a rear disc wheel does is creates kind of a sail effect, kind of like an airplane wing or a sail in the wind. This wheel became wanted worldwide just because very few of them like this. And it made you instantly faster on the bike. You didn't really have to do much more because it was free speed. That disc wheel was what started the company, the solid disc wheel. What eventually happened is this wheel could not be ridden on the front in on the road because you would get blown over by the wind. A rear disc wheel is really for the rear of the wheel. So Stephen had an idea of what do we need next to keep the business growing? And he invented a arrow-shaped front wheel that uses hubs and a spoke, so it's not solid. And that then jumped the company even farther because then we had a pair of wheels. On the front would be this deep rimmed carbon wheel that again had that beautiful airfoil shape. 
and the solid rear disc wheel, that's when the company moved into much more sales and we actually were able to buy a house in 87 that it was allowed to live there and work there. It was zoned commercial, but there was a home on it. So we then bought this house together in 87 and were able to really actually hire our first employee back then. That was in 87. Did anyone ever make these wheels before y'all or were there competitors? Because that's what I'm just trying to figure out, like, because I don't know anything about bicycles. I'm not sure how many other people who are listening are, but I'm just trying to think your differentiator, even when you started, or is it just you're making something that was better and faster or something that had never been done before? Or can you give us a little bit more details on that? So the very first composite bicycle wheels Stephen saw was on this athlete and they were made in Europe. And the price tag on that set of wheels was $6,000. Okay, wow. Stephen, again, came from a meager background too, and he thought to himself, I can make one of these wheels and I think I can sell it to people or to bike shops and have it retail for under $500. Okay. That was his goal, was to bring it to mainstream cycling at an affordable price. There was a couple other of these wheels being made. There was one actually made in California, but it was quite a bit more expensive. We were really the first people to bring it mainstream to the public. And that's what founded the company was this first disc wheel. That's what you're trying to differentiate is that you're making a product that's almost the same as 6,000 for a pair that you could do for much less. Much less, yes. Let's talk about after you got that loan, you said you bought a house, but can we just go over maybe that first year in business? Because I don't want to skip over if someone's trying to start their own business and the trial and tribulations that you have to go through, especially in the very beginning years. Well, obviously in the very beginning, it was just Steve and I, and we were just trying to make ends meet. And I tell my kids this now is that there's nothing against Malto meal, but I can't eat Malto meal anymore because we literally had no money. And we were, like I said, renting a space and we actually had to make some of the wheels in Stephen's parents' garage. But it was hard. I mean, just to be able to buy those raw goods took all of our money. And we could barely even afford to eat, <laughs> seriously. So back then, there was very few credit cards. I remember getting up in the morning and just basically eating grits because that's all we could afford. I think that's really what gave us the strength to continue. And when you have realized that, you know what, we have such a passion to make this product and help other people go fast and achieve their dreams that for the first three years, we just lived hand to mouth and we'd sell a wheel and that would pay rent. We'd sell a wheel and maybe be able to go to a restaurant that night. It didn't happen quickly. A lot of it was just working tirelessly night and day on just getting enough products out there so that we could just pay the bills. And like, what were y'all doing in those first couple of years? And did you ever want to give up, especially if the first three years you're basically doing this? Yes. We had times that were so difficult because you'd spend all day just trying to make one wheel and it was, if it didn't work, it was just in the bin. And I think we were such a team that was what gave us the strength just to continue on those tough days. And we would not only work together, but Stephen and I loved going for bike rides together. So you'd have those hard days, you'd get out and go for a ride and you realize that you need to keep moving because you're on this amazing product and other people want it. And those tough days eventually will pay off, but you don't really realize how hard it was until you look back at it this many years later, because we didn't know any better. Neither of us came from any kind of business degree. 
we just met each other and this evolved. But I think those are the days that define you as a person and you learn from them in those tough days. They're going to be there and they're always going to be there. I think it's just such an attitude thing and being able to lean on each other and understand what each other were going through as a team is what helped us move on. I guess that's the key thing because I was wondering what you were working on. You're saying it would take a whole day to make a wheel? Sure. Okay. So that's where a lot of the time seems like it was going, maybe on his end. And then were you doing the same thing? How did you split it up, what you were doing? Once we knew that we could actually sell this wheel, his day was mostly spent making them. Back then, we didn't have like a storefront. We'd have to pick up the phone and figure out how to get that wheel to a bike shop. We'd had to figure out how we'd get paid for that wheel. I mean, back then there wasn't credit cards. We actually, once we moved into the house shop, I call it, we had to get like a fax machines so that we could start getting orders. Even though I wasn't racing as much, we would get these wheels to different professional athletes and they'd travel in New Zealand or they'd travel in Europe. And we started getting phone calls during the day saying, hey, we want this wheel. And we decided, you know, this really dates us. I mean, back then a fax machine was how we'd get orders through the night. It was iconic when we realized in 89 that we could finally move out of that shop because I couldn't sleep at night. The fax machine would be going all night. We'd be starting to get orders from international clients and I couldn't sleep because if your fax is turned off, you don't get a fax. We were able to grow the business enough in 87, 88, and 89, hire a few more people. In 90, we added on to the building another 3,000 square feet. And that's when Stephen introduced this other bicycle wheel and it just moved forward from then. Okay. So that was a huge stepping stone after the first couple of years was the introduction of the front wheel. Right. For those who don't know, I mean, a fax machine is really loud. There might be some younger people who sure sure what a fax machine is. It must have been a big jump for y'all to be able to buy a house after that first couple of years because it's not like you weren't doing anything really in sales, but other than just enough to eat, right? Well, I did everything Stephen didn't do, meaning Stephen was really in charge of making the product, getting the product done. I answered the phones. I figured out how to pack the product. I figured out how to sticker the product, clean the product. It was what I loved to do, though. I'm more of an integrator. I love figuring out how do I get this wheel to Europe? How do I get the new decals made and all that? It was my role. If I had it today, I'd still be back there and shipping, but they won't let me go back there because I mess things up too much. But it was just a gift I had. I think you're born with certain gifts and Stephen was a visionary and has this amazing gift. If you take a strength finder test, it was just total visionary and entrepreneurial and where mine is more relator and determination to get product out the door. So I think you have these certain gifts that you're born with. You just have to tap into them. When you joined them and decided to make the company marketing wise, was it going to help a lot that you were a triathlete? Was that your edge to try to get these bicycle wheels outside the door? You know, it's a relationship based. And I think that's what so much of business is still today is that I did the Ironman, I think, eight more times. And so Stephen and I would go to Kona and we'd go to a bike shop and we'd set up a station there and we actually helped and were one of the first people that helped with the tech support on that course. And, you know, you travel to different destinations and I race. It just gives validity of the company and the desire we had to make a good product. 
when you see a co-founder race on the product that they make, it speaks volumes. And there's nothing more than building relationships at triathlons where we would go and if there was a problem with the wheel or there was a problem with somebody else's wheel, we'd have a wheel for them. We'd be tech support. So really it started that way. I mean, we helped and still do help the athletes that win the Hawaiian Ironman triathlon. So we haven't lost our relationships with athletes. And for anybody beginning a business, there's something still to that face-to-face that is not replaceable over the phone. You need to get there and deal one-on-one with athletes. And the athletes only make your product better. You have to listen to what their needs are too. Are these just basically for premier athletes, these type of wheels, or you introduce them to like regular consumers as well? Through the years, our product has progressed a lot, starting with the disc wheel and that composite front arrow wheel. You have to be pretty serious about doing a triathlon to purchase one of these. We also introduce an amazing composite three-spoke wheel, which is pretty much an iconic wheel that you would see today in the Tour de France. This wheel that we manufacture actually has the fastest recorded time trial ever in the Tour de France. So yes, those are incredibly fast wheels. But throughout the years, we've changed our product a little bit and we've made wheels for your weekend riders. We make an aluminum rim that's priced more affordably. We make a composite fat bike rim. We were actually the first people to introduce that to the world and we actually have a patent on that. You don't see them so much in Florida, but here in the Midwest, there's this fat bike wheel that is pretty amazing because you can kind of ride it through snow and mountains. And it really made our company grow to the next level when we introduced that wheel to the market that was introduced in 2013. And you were talking about the wheel that's used in the Tour de France. So is that why Lance Armstrong won all those Tour de France's in a row? Well, there is a story about Lance and it's actually (laughs) quite interesting. I got a phone call from a kid because he really was a kid because I could tell from his voice in mid 80s, I think 86, 87, somewhere in there. Can't remember the exact date, but he called on the phone and he said, I don't really have enough money to buy a wheel, but I heard your wheels are really fast. And is there any way that you'd send me some wheels? I remember being in that same position as a professional athlete, calling around, looking for sponsorship. And this kid had something special in his voice. I just thought in my gut, you know, I'm going to help him out. We sent Lance a couple of wheels and gosh, about a month later, I got a phone call and, you know, either hit something or I don't know what he did, but he broke one. I'm like, you're a kid, you know, (laughs) we haven't had young kids break our product. I mean, there's, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? And I said, how about this? I'm going to send you a couple more wheels and I want you to test them for us and report back to me. And if there's an issue, call me. We were super unfortunate. He didn't have too many issues with his wheels. He just went on to win a lot, but we gave Lance Armstrong some money for a year for him to work alongside us. We were one of his very first sponsors. And because of that, Lance went on to become an amazing athlete and still is. He was very appreciative of us. And even when he could have asked for quite a bit of money to have our name on that wheel, he chose to use our wheel with our decal and we just were able to supply wheels for him. Was that another turning point in the company? Yeah, that was pretty huge because It brought our product again to a whole nother level worldwide. Lance was 
very particular about his product. Stephen was on his F1 team and it was with Oakley and Nike and Trek and he would want product to be at the next level. I still remember him doing the tour and we had not done this three spoke composite wheel for a rear wheel. And he said, I want that wheel for the rear. And we built it, we made it. And to see him going down these mountains so incredibly fast, winning a time trial is just still brings goosebumps because with anybody who makes a product or a manufacturer has their own business, there's this gratification to see it being won worldwide. And to be honest with you, you'd always like, please just don't hit anything, you know, just stay together. And then he'd come across the finish line and it was awesome. Yeah, it did bring our company to the forefront and worldwide to see our name on a wheel that was winning the tour. Until you brought up Lance Armstrong, I hadn't remembered, but I actually do remember seeing your logo. I think even when he won the very first one, I think that's when people in America started watching. I'm not sure if they watch as much anymore, but I remember seeing your logo even then. Just that opportunity that you gave him when he was younger, he remembered that. How many years after that was he doing the Tour de France? Well, he did it for a total of seven years. And actually the very first tour, I think he was on somebody else's wheel, but I don't think the first one. But well, put it this way, when you start winning at that level, you can request whatever equipment you want. I think the first year he had to use a competitor's wheel. But from then on, he said, I want their wheels. It was so amazing because Stephen went to a few tours. I didn't. I stayed home. But there's nothing like getting that phone call saying, the winds are coming out of the West at 15, and this is what we're anticipating. What wheel do we use? It got to be that technical that you could gauge what wheel to use the day, depending on the winds or the rain or the heat, because we could dial in what would be the fastest for him, not only in the tour, but other races. It was a science, still is a science to figure out what to use because the product is that good and it's made for all different conditions. Our wheels are all different depths depending on the conditions of the day. You remember when he called you when he was, you said he was a kid, how old was he then? And then when did he actually win that? We don't care about his first Tour de France because he wasn't using yours, but wasn't there like five years in between or something? And he still remembered that? He did triathlons for a while and then he joined a cycling team and won a big championship race. He got sick with cancer in between also, obviously. It was probably about five years in between, correct, that he was able to decide that this is the product I continue to use because he was a cyclist, got sick, and then came back and then won a world championship and then went on to win the tours. It just goes to show, I mean, if you wouldn't have shipped it to him, then you probably would have never had that opportunity, right, when he called when he was younger? Right. And again, I think that's kind of the path of life. It's like a circle. Like another amazing story that I'd like to tell you about is that Steve's vision of seeing that very first disc wheel by Francisco Mosier was another path that I was able to see come to fruition is last year, I got a phone call from a team that we sponsor in Europe. It's the Red Hook Racing Team, which is this crazy racing that they do at night. It's a criterium. The team said, I just need a couple more wheels. We have another athlete joining. And I said, sure, who is the new athlete? And they said, it's Francisco Mosier's son. So 30 more years after I'm able to honor Francisco Mosier by sponsoring his son. How does that happen? That's just amazing. Who is Francisco Mosier? Did I miss that in the beginning? Francisco Mosier is the person that broke the hour record on those double disc wheels and was the vision for Stephen to make the first disc wheel. Okay, that's where you come in full circle is that Stephen originally got that vision and that wheel 
because of Francisco, you're saying. Right. And then over 30 years later, we get to sponsor his son. So what do you think about that group call? That was good. It's cool because you get to see what other people are doing. They're kind of in the same stage as me. Hopefully that was helpful. Definitely. Yeah. Actually, a lot of stuff. The Upwork thing was very interesting. Yeah, no, things come full circle. And then you had mentioned something about the bringing back to the business wise. You said you had a patent on these fat tires as well, because it seems like over the years, you've been smart enough to like expand or try different things along with the business. Did you want to talk about that a little bit more about these fat tires? Because I know you said it's used a lot up there, up north in North America, but actually I live at the beach and I see those like crazy now over the last couple of years. So the evolution of our wheels has come full circle. Originally, it started with the solid disc wheel. It went on to the composite arrow-shaped, tutorial-shaped wheel that I talked about, that one on the front of the wheel. We moved into that three-spoke composite wheel that you saw Lance win all those tours on. In 2014, there's a couple defining moments with the business. We have made wheels for several large companies. We've made wheels for Trek. They came to us because Lance was on that team and we were original equipment on some of their bikes. And we've made bike wheels for Cervelo, which is another high-end triathlon road company. A lot of our niche market is being able to mold carbon and it's really green. So it comes out of the mold clean. It doesn't need a lot of surface cleaning. And it's much different than Asia because we don't have to paint or fill a lot. It's a very clean operation. In 2014, when we were making wheels for Cervelo, which is another deep rim carbon wheel, they came to us because they had an idea. And the idea was to manufacture a frame, which we had never done before in Minnesota, which was much closer to Canada than Taiwan. It's a Canadian-based company. And Stephen was super excited about that. And their vision was to make a one-piece molded carbon frame, which really hadn't been done before. It, they wanted a frame to pop out done in one piece, but they knew that we had amazing manufacturing capabilities. They asked us to do this. And Stephen had made a very small prototype mold we can do all that in Minnesota because we have the capabilities to machine our own tooling also. So they really liked that. The engineers decided it was time to come and see this very first prototype. And the day that they came was pretty much like any other day between Steve and I. We're getting ready to go to work and decided that, you know, this was going to be a big day for us because we wanted to show our capabilities of making this frame. And I had to leave that day to go get my daughter from school and the engineers were there and they were laying up this part and Stephen said I'll give you a call as soon as this comes out so it was going to be kind of a big move for the company because up until then we had just done wheels and he called me to tell me that the very first prototype frame worked and it was absolute complete joy in his voice it was just like a kid again you know, when the first wheel popped out and it worked, it's just an exciting thing. And this frame really worked. And he said that the engineers were super happy with it. They wanted to go in production with it. And it was just amazing. It was like the old days. It was like excitement and joy. Unfortunately, the next phone call was not from Steve. It was from an employee and Stephen had passed out in our parking lot at work and he was not breathing. And 
I went to the hospital and he wouldn't wake up and he was in the hospital for four days and he ended up passing away naturally. And that was my last conversation with him was in November of 14. So I had a big decision there to decide what I wanted to do with the company. And knowing that this was such a beautiful experience for him and such a joyful one, I decided that I had to continue and I wanted this frame to be made because it was like a gift. It's the last gift to me. And we moved on. We had to pick up in December of 2014. We had not only made this frame, but we had also just introduced the next amazing product in our lineup, the carbon fat bike rim. We had a very large order for those. We had a frame that we needed to make for Cervelo. Through my incredible faith and my employees, we moved in. Everybody, equipment, tooling, machinery, offices, desks, in December, three weeks after Stephen passed away. You moved into where? A brand new facility. Okay. We had signed a seven-year lease onto a 24,000 square foot building five miles away. And we picked up and moved the whole facility three weeks later. And you had already planned on that beforehand? Yep. All right. Well, I mean, obviously this two month period must have been the most chaotic of your life, would you say? Oh, there's not even really an adjective I can think of. I mean, I lost my absolute love of my life. We were married for almost 25 years. We have two amazing children. We have this amazing company. But he was my best friend. More than anything, it was losing him. And it was an absolute blur because I think not having him around to help design this whole building and get everything going, it's just a testimony of the faith I have to move forward and the amazing people that I get to work with because we all just picked up and moved. And today, I mean, again, I don't know how I did it. It was so incredibly hard. And my daughter, that same week had torn her ACL in basketball tryout. We had her waiting on surgery, moving the company, Stephen passing away. And on top of it, two sales and use tax audits. I mean, it was like, what else can happen to me? It was really hard, but I'm here. I was looking back it's when I was going to ask if any downturns, because it sounded like those first couple of years were hard. And then after that, everything went up. And then you're telling me about this story, obviously. Maybe... It was a blessing that you had so much on your plate because if you didn't, maybe you'd be thinking a lot more about that. Obviously, it has to be incredibly difficult. You know, I love to work. I guess you have a passion to move forward in life. But honestly, I struggled with even this podcast a little bit because it's millionaire interviews. Well, it just doesn't happen. You know, I mean, I don't really think of myself like that. What does it really mean? It took us 30 plus years to grow the company to where it is now. And what is the value? If people are listening to this and well, what is a millionaire? I better have that much in resources with equipment and patents and machinery, but it just doesn't happen overnight. And there has to be a value to run a company. A company needs to be profitable because how else do you pay your payroll, pay your taxes and provide 401ks for your employees and provide health insurance? Yes, you have to make money to grow a company but it does happen to some people overnight. It didn't happen that way for Steve and I. It took years and years and hard work and determination. But I think the way some people do it and it happens quicker is phenomenal. That's their path. But you know, ours took a long time. And I think it was the way that I wanted it to happen. I can't imagine it happening any other way because the hardships we went through 
in those hard years and everything I've gone through now is really defines what I am as a person. If the money comes, great. But when you get doing a business for how long as I have been, I'm at the point in my life now is what can I do to give back? That's success to me. Well, hopefully yeah, your story coming back here, I think will help make other people successful. That's why they tune in to learn from your experiences. It says a lot to be able to stay with your one company. You've only had this one company your whole life, right? This is it. <laughs> yep. There's nothing else. And I think that frame was a turning point because we couldn't talk about that frame to anybody besides internal staff here because it was so secret. It was not my frame. It was a frame for another company. It was top secret and the company wanted a certain amount of them in stock. And then they had it embargo for a week before the Ironman, but it was released a couple of days before Hawaii Ironman. It stretched our limits of teaching us what we could do for other carbon molding. And we were able to watch that frame get debuted at the 2016 Hawaiian Ironman in Kona. Kind of my roots came back and we were able to see that frame get ridden in the Hawaiian Ironman by several professional athletes. It was a big turning point for me to see it come to life and move on. And now I think there's so much more we can do as a company in carbon manufacturing. And you had mentioned about being profitable because that is important. I think maybe sometimes people get too thinking too much just about revenue and not that income. Other than the first years when you're living on like rice and beans, it sounds like, have you always been steady financially with the company? We've been fortunate. We found a niche market. We were first to market on it. And Stephen and the company now is still ahead of the next. We didn't go and buy beyond our means. We wouldn't buy tooling unless we knew we could afford it. And one of our strengths has been figuring out how to make the product affordable with tooling also, you have to decide what you're comfortable with sleeping at night. Some people are probably just perfectly fine going to the bank and having huge lines of credit. Steve and I were never like that just because we didn't come from that mentality and I'm not putting that down. I mean, there's successful people that have gone that route, but we knew how to and still know how to build product affordably with the tooling that we know we need to move forward as a company. And we decided that we would always stay that way. Sure, there's times where it's December or January and the cash flow isn't as good as it is in April or May. And I have a line of credit only if I need it. And But that's not what I want to do as a company. I feel really fortunate that our cash flow has been good enough that, hey, if we need to buy a lathe or a mill or a CNC cutter, we decide what we need to buy to keep moving forward as a company. So yeah, you're just basically saying that you could go out and buy top of the line manufacturing parts or tools to help you make these things, but you've always been smart about it. Again, I'm of the same exact mindset that you are. I personally, I don't have any debt. I won't ever have any debt because I don't want it. It's my choice. And if some people want a new car and want to go get a loan on it, they can do that. I don't put them down for that. Right. That's their choice and their lifestyle choice. But me, I'm never going to do that because to me, I don't see the value in it. Right. So did you always just use the profits from even the beginning to kind of reinvest? Yes, we did. And that's kind of where my humble beginnings come in. And I actually Googled <laughs> how many millionaires there are in Minnesota. We have 10,000 likes and there's 10 times as many millionaires. It's like, we're not special. There's so many people that have the ability to do this. It's just what you do with it. You have to 
be able to sleep at night. Okay. And so through all the hardships that I've been through and the company's gone through, I find solace in, wow, I just hired a high school kid, female or male, and I taught him a skill. And 20 years from now, when who knows what Annie Head's doing, they can take that skill. And whether head cycling is here and they're still making wheels for Annie or whomever, I've taught them a skill that they can use forever. And that's super important to me. We have amazing values here at Head Cycling, honesty, excellence, dependability, and passion and innovation. I mean, what do you do with that? Money can only bring you so far in life, but my joy now is watching some of my other coworkers' kids go to college. You know, I had a part of that. I was able to provide for them. I was able to make payroll. That's super important to me. And last year, we worked with over a dozen nonprofits. It's like free bikes for kids to see that little kid that's coming here and maybe from a third world country and it's their first bike or healing from Haiti or it doesn't matter. I believe in head cycling worldwide and every wheel that's made here gets touched by somebody who we taught a skill to because everything's made by hand. Everything. The carbon is made here in the U.S. A lot of the componentries are made in the U.S. It's what I'm so incredibly proud about. Again, if we want to say it again about coming full circle about you being a mentor now versus when you first took up swimming, that's hopefully what you are to the people who are listening. It's kind of hard to find those people, whether you're a woman or a man or you're in the U.S. or not in the U.S., to try to find these business mentors that you can like at least listen to and get their story and hopefully aspire to and just hear their concept. And being that mentor, is there any other thing that looking back on your story that you'd like to give as far as advice to people who are listening and wanting to start their own businesses? I think you never know what you don't know. And so (laughs) if I and Steve had actually asked for help, or leaned on other mentors throughout the years, some of our hard days maybe wouldn't have been as hard. I mean, we have accountants and my accountant, Kevin, and my lady lord, Jenny, who have been with me through thick and thin. You know, we've surrounded ourselves with smart people and we've hired smart people. We have some retired MBAs here that this is like a fun job for them. We started a new ERP system this last six months, which gave me a few gray hairs. But, you know, the gentleman that helped set it up is retired from another company and he loved it. To think that somebody would love doing that. (laughs) Sorry, but it's like, you know, finding people that have a different skill set than you is what I would recommend because you need a real diversity in your staff and letting them grow and making them accountable. I joined a CEO roundtable in 2013, which I wish I would have done so many years ago because I have learned so much through them. doesn't matter if you make bike wheels or if you own a fire extinguisher company, somebody does that. There's an IT person. I mean, it does not matter. You all have ups and downs and the same issues. Another thing that we started right after Stephen passed away is we started Traction, which is an entrepreneurial organizational system that is written by Gina Wickman, a book that was written. And part of that has helped me learn that I can't do it all. I was able to put the right people in the right seat. And this whole system was amazing. And I hired an implementer. And every 90 days we meet. And it doesn't matter. You always need to refresh after 90 days because things always seem to either get caught up. If you get stuck, you can't really go much longer than 90 days. And we do that every 90 days. And it really brought the company together. And the entire company does it now. And 
we have to read business books now. And I never thought I'd do that. And I never thought my staff would do it. But books like Small Giants by Bo Burlingham, we were at Forbes Small Giant last year. And it's just the whole culture. You have to have your culture. You have to be comfortable with it. But it doesn't mean that you can't be accountable as a company and make sure that the staff that you're working along and the people that you sit with each day are growing also. And that would be my advice is as you grow, lean on people that have been through the ups and downs. So your life might be a little easier. Well, I'd been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call. And um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was going to be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day and I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I got to do this. And do you have any suggestion for doing that, especially if you're kind of getting started out? I like your higher end concepts. You're saying how you joined some CEOs a few years back, but maybe even in the first early years, do you have any suggestions on maybe how to find those? Again, neither of us came from any business training, so it was all pretty much hard knocks. From the infancy, we tried to find a really good accountant because if your numbers aren't there, you're not going to go anywhere. You have to know where you're going. And even back in the old days, we always thought, well, there's still money in the bank. We must be doing okay. But to plan for the future and decide what equipment you're going to need to buy and how to plan out for that was in manufacturing is huge. And I have a really good business lawyer that helps us with those hard decisions because on my strength finder, my second one is empathy. So I have a really hard time saying no. I had to learn how to do that. I have some young people here and they're so smart just by listening to and finding the right people and finding the right hires can really grow your company and letting them grow, letting them fail. Just like I had failed so many times in our R&D department, if something doesn't work once a week, then we're not pushing ourselves. We want to fail because then we know where our mistakes lie. You have to. Just like that swimming team I never made, completely failed. If I would have quit, I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now. I guess I'm trying to just make sure we have the rounded concepts for those beginning years, really trying to find those mentors or finding a good accountant, it sounds like, especially with what you're saying was good. But I heard you bring this up a couple of times, and maybe it sounds like it's important to you as like a strength finder test to make sure you understand yourself or your employees. This is the fun stuff that you can learn from these round tables or even business classes, which I didn't have, is that you really do have strengths and you want to lean on those. I took my first strength finder when I was 50 years old. <laughs> it's like, maybe I should have done that before because why should I concentrate on the things I'm not good at? If I would have done that years ago, then maybe some of my tough days wouldn't have been as tough because I would have realized that I need to hire a person that has that strength because I don't have it and I need to concentrate on what I'm good at. There's so many outlets now that you can go to. I work alongside Women Venture here in Minnesota and I'm part of the Minnesota and National Wide Business Women's Organization. And I'm really proud to say that I'm gonna be certified soon as a woman business owned company. And my vision for the future is to take the knowledge that we have in carbon and expand that. Everybody needs to think about the future and growing their company and diversifying. And we know how to make amazingly fast wheels and we'll continue to grow that market. But I never thought I would be women owned. It wasn't the path I wanted. I wanted to be with Steve, but I'm not in control of that. My goal now is I'm meeting with the Small Business Administration, which I never even thought I would do, and say, what can I do for the world? Is there something that can be made out of carbon for medical or aerospace or, you know, we help with the Paralympics. 
there's so many more opportunities we have because the gift that Steve gave me with moving forward for that composite frame that I think I'm still at the infancy of where the company can go. Don't lose your passion or your dream. I'm not a spring chicken anymore, but I have all these smart people working around me and I want the company to grow. We think you're a smart person too. That's why we had you on. <laughs> I don't know what I am. I just have tenacity, right? Yeah. You know? That's obvious. Because I always want to make sure we have like one actionable advice for somebody. And I think you brought it up doing the strength finders test. I think it's only like 20 bucks. I did mine right before I did the podcast again. I did one maybe when I was 20, but it'd been at least 10 years since I had done it. And it gave me the confidence that, okay, I can do this podcast because my strengths were lining up on what would be what I think would make me a good business person or good at podcasting. I think everyone should take the time if you haven't done it and definitely take a chance. And you think you know yourself, but not necessarily, right? Right. I think you don't really know what you don't know until you see it in writing. Like all these years, we knew what our vision and passion was, elevating the cycling experience through innovation design. But until it's written in front of you, like, yeah, that's what we do. That's what we want people to know, that we were amazing company and we make amazing products. But until you see it on a piece of paper, sometimes you don't realize what your strengths are. And you're right. It gives you the added confidence, like, this is me. This is my story. And everybody has a gift. And I don't think I know all my gifts yet. Had I not been put into the face of the company, which was never my desire, you only know what you know until it's the time to do it. Like Stephen was the face of the company for years and I was absolutely perfectly fine being there right alongside him, cheering for him. But now I'm in that role and it was really scary at first. I was like, how am I going to do this and what's going to happen? And people are probably wondering if the doors are going to close and what is Annie going to do? But it's all those little challenges and pitfalls that you go through in life that give you the confidence to move on. And you're going to fail. And lots of times you're going to just wonder, is it worth it? And as long as you just keep moving forward, just take those, I call them little roadblocks, the path of life, you're going to hit those potholes. But it's really your confidence, your determination, and your attitude. I am pretty happy, and I've had a lot of hardship, but my rock is my faith and my family and my work here. But whatever it is, as long as you learn from those mistakes and don't let them beat you down too hard, I mean, you're going to have tough days, and I have them too, but so much of it is attitude. If I walked in here every day and grumbled about something not working, I mean, it rubs off on your employees. You just have to understand that everybody's human. And you're going to have those days. But most days, we're all pretty fortunate. We're really blessed. I'm really blessed today as I look out in my window and it's 70 degrees and sunny and the birds are chirping. And you finally get to talk to me after I missed our first appointment. So, right. <laughs> I don't know if the listeners know that. You're never going to forget that. It's like my name not being on that wall. <laughs> you're going to say, who was the first person that yeah. missed their podcast? But you had a good reason. You said you got a good phone. So let's just, a new phone and the phone. <laughs> set up right and blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of a shitty reason. But I think it's funny. It, yeah, it works. Yeah, we both remember. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time to share your story and inspire those people who are listening. If someone wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview, Annie, how would they do that? If somebody wanted just to reach out to me, you can email me, A-N-N-E at headcycling.com. That's kind of my way to get to people in the world. It, it seems the easiest to get a hold of me. I've been fortunate to listen to several of your other podcasts, and I think they're really inspiring. So hopefully I've inspired somebody who's maybe having a rough time to just pick up those pieces and keep moving. 
forward and realize that it doesn't always happen overnight. There's a path you're on, but I think that if you believe in yourself and have the confidence, you'll be able to succeed. No, absolutely. Even if it's one person, but I can guarantee you it's much more than that. Because back to what you said about being just positive and like thinking how fortunate and how much worse things could be, like even what, what you've gone through, we can still hear that positivity in your voice. And that's what motivates and kind of brings that energy around your workers as well. Because if you were just negative the whole time, that's the type of atmosphere you'd promote. I think we can all feel your positivity just throughout this interview. And again, thank you for sharing your story today. Awesome. I look forward to meeting some of your other interview people. And I love listening to your podcast. You're doing a really great job, Austin. Keep it up. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more product-based interviews, then consider these episodes. Episode 75 with John of Sticker Giant. Episode 73 with Steven of Tower Paddleboards. Episode 67 with Jamie Price of Great and Beer. Episode 63 with Dr. Dan Cohen of Breathe Right Strips. Try episode 61 with Andrew of Agora Northwest Coffee Systems. Episode 58 with Alijo of Blue Smart Luggage, a Y Combinator company. Episode 56 with Corey Tall of Climate Sleeping Bags. Or try episode 54 with Mike Otis, where he talks about running a family door company for 20 years. Or episode 52 with Chris White of Shinesty Clothing. And episode 49 with Josh Sherman of Yeah Nice Beanies. Wait, 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 hold on. Before you go, I'm sure you know by now, we have plenty of Patreon episodes to fill your passion bucket up with more business interviews. So check that out. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.